Good morning, Real Hope. How y'all doing today? <laughs> Good to see you guys. Well, yeah, as Jenny said, we are continuing on, uh, plunging forward into week seven of our journey through the Psalms. And if you've been with us at all the summer, we've been jumping from chapter to chapter, just addressing different songs and the way that they encapsulate an aspect of our relationship with God, of who He is and how we get to engage with Him. And over the course of this series, one of the most amazing things that has been my takeaway every single week is the way that we are allowed and enabled to approach God from imperfect places. We've read through Psalms that have praised the name of God even in the midst of trial and hurt. We have seen, read Psalms of repentance and transformation when people have walked so far in disobedience and God has so graciously brought them back. We've read songs that are cries for justice in an imperfect world that is longing for God's redemption and His mercy to pour out. We've, sung, we've read through psalms of humble reflection as God has reminded His people of who He truly is and where we stand with Him. All of these amazing songs approaching God from some imperfect place where He reveals His perfection to His people. And this week is going to be no different. We're going to venture into a psalm that addresses a unique and I think for many of us, an uncomfortable way of approaching our God. Because today's psalm is a song of complaint. And now whether you're a parent in the room and have ever interacted with a child, if you work in an office and have that one coworker in the other cubicle over, or if you're like me and you have playlist after playlist of sad songs that you listen to on the daily, we all know what it's like to hear a complaint. We're all very familiar with complaints. And many of us have grown up Hearing this phrase, nobody likes a complainer. Don't be a complainer. Don't be whining. We hear the Bible verse, do all things without complaining or arguing. And I think the reason why we are taught that and the reason why we teach that to other people is that we don't like hearing complaints. But the funny thing is, as much as we hate to hear a complaint, if we're honest, we love to give one. And I'm sure many of you are like, I know exactly who I would be talking to if I had the clearance to say one right now. Maybe it's towards me. Meet me after church. But the funny thing is, we don't like hearing complaints, but we have them all the time. And I don't know if you're like me. I'm a non-confrontational, passive-to-a-fault kind of person. I, if, if I have a complaint, it goes in the bottle and it stays on the shelf until the bottle breaks. I pack every single one in there until they can't fit anymore. I hate raising up complaints or grievances. I just feel uncomfortable with it. I feel disrespectful speaking to somebody in that sort of way, saying, hey, we've got issues. You know, that, that lack of peace between us, I really do not like. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we do have that degree of discomfort and complaining when it comes to the way that we talk with God. Because He's our King. He's our Lord. He's ruler over all heaven and earth. Who am I to start complaining to him or having an issue with God Almighty? But I would actually challenge this with, and I challenge it in my own self as I read what we're going to read today, because I think there's two issues when we are unwilling to speak to God in a very honest and transparent way, even if it seems a little ugly. First of all, is not saying it doesn't mean that it just goes away. I think a lot of our coping mechanisms can be distilled down to this. It's, I'm going to have a problem, and I'm not going to talk about it until, I don't know, everybody forgets, and it doesn't matter anymore. 
Now, first of all, that's not a healing way of living through life. That is self-defense, first and foremost. And the second problem with this is that when we do not voice these things to God that are within our hearts, we actually miss out on something that is a very rich and special aspect of our relationship with the Lord of all the earth. See, God calls us to bring our honest and imperfect selves to him, and that includes through the discipline of biblical complaining. So that's what we're going to learn about today. How and why you ought to complain. Parents in the room, I'm sorry if this gives a pass to your children. That's your home. You, you get to make the rules there. So, in the interest of learning about this and what God has to say about us and our complaints, would you turn with me to the book of Psalms? Chapter 73, it's almost halfway through the book, chapter 73. As you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of background on this uh, chapter, this specific passage. Uh, This was written by a man named Asaph. We don't really know much about Asaph, except that he actually is responsible for writing the second most psalms in the entire book of Psalms. And before we start applauding him, he wrote 12 and David wrote 75, but he's in the Bible and we're not, so it's still impressive, you know? So Asaph taps into something here in chapter 73 that I find very personal and meaningful, and I think God intends to communicate something special to each and every one of us as we walk through together and hear how Asaph pours his heart out towards God. So would you read with me? Beginning of verse 1 of chapter 73, Asaph says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, this is an interesting kind of complaint, but I think if we're honest, it looks very familiar to each and every one of us, is that Asaph starts off his complaint with a compliment. He starts off with something positive in this. And as we read, we realize that Asaph is actually kind of writing this in retrospect. This is kind of a memoir of a difficult time in his life and his reflections on it. And so, He starts off this song basically where he is going to end as he finishes out. But I think a lot of times for us, we kind of start off with a positive, but it's not in reflection of something God has said. It is trying to soften the blow as we raise our complaints. We do it with each other all the time. You know, hey, I I appreciate you showing up. You're always here on time. You always give 110%. But if you could just also do this, that would be great. We're kind of trying to spread butter on burnt toast when we do that. It's almost a way of trying to remain, maintain a deniability, saying like, I'm not, I'm not complaining. I've got so many positive things to say. But in reality, I think if we're very honest with ourselves, when we kind of list off these compliments and these positive points, we might be trying to start off on the right foot. But it's not an honest start. Because a lot of times it has little or nothing to do with what's really going on in here, with what's really going on on the inside. Now, I can pray to God and say, Lord, I, you know, I know you're good. Thank you for giving me a house. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my job. But God, I don't know what's going on over here. This stuff kind of gets thrown out as soon as the issue arises. And I think something that God wants to, to recognize from this is, hey, you don't have to butter me up in order to talk to me. I receive you as you are. I save you as you are. You don't have to try and soften the blow of something I already know is coming. 
if we were to be rushed into urgent care with a broken arm, we wouldn't start by complimenting the doctor on all the years they spent in med school. You wouldn't start with this because it really has nothing to do with the fact that I need someone to fix this right now. I got a real issue. This is all that's on my mind because it's all I'm feeling right now is the pain of this brokenness. And so something that we should take from this is that, yes, God is still good. Yes, there is truth that we can find in him. But that doesn't mean that we have to try and distract our own selves and what we might be feeling and how we might, what we might be needing to bring to God at that time, wherever we, are, wherever we are in our lives. So Asaph may start with this thesis, but then he immediately admits that he nearly fell off in his walk with God. He nearly completely lost sight because he was envious. He was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. And I think for many of us, if we're honest, we can all admit that when, when we are envious of something, when we are kind of despising our lives for want of something else or someone else's life, it becomes our lens. And it starts to discolor every single thing that we are perceiving so that, honestly, talking about God's goodness feels more like lip service than honest-to-goodness belief that we are holding in ourselves. And we lose sight of God's goodness and His truth when we are walking around with unchecked burdens and complaints. Asaph is doing this here, and he's admitting it to God, saying that he envies the prosperity of the wealthy, and he goes on to describe the lives of those he is envious of. Let's continue on in verse 4. It reads like this. He says, They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Lord, does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Now, I want to I go ahead and make this very clear to us. Asaph in the Bible, they are not condemning or accusing people of having wealth, of acquiring a lot of money, or of being rich. That's not the issue here. Money is an amoral thing. You can use it to worship God and steward it for His glory and His kingdom, or it can become your God. And the love of money can become the root to all kinds of evil within our hearts. So Asaph was upset not just because people were rich. That wasn't his problem. It was that people who don't seem to care about following God had it way better off than he did. He was envious of other people who seemed to live without care or worry, even though God had nothing to do with their lives. They had no care or regard or trust in him. And these people would boast in their excess and every wrong thing that they would did to obtain it. They would show no gratitude toward God, no graciousness or generosity to their fellow man. And their money had become their own God. It had become an idol to them. And they started saying, does the Lord Most High know anything at all? How would God know? Basically saying, hey, God can't stop me. Look what I've got here. Does God, is God even useful for anything? I seem to be doing just fine without him. And if this was Asaph's only issue, I think we could all nod our head and say, like, 
yeah, that's wrong. That's, that's, we would all feel that indignation within us as well to hear somebody so boastful and so, so wrathful as the people that he's describing. But beneath the surface, Asaph is hearing these people question the goodness or the use of God, and he's beginning to wonder the same thing himself. And here's where we get to his example of true and biblical complaint. Starting in verse 13, Asaph says this, Surely I have kept my heart pure, and in vain I have kept my heart pure, and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. You see, Asaph is obedient to God, but he is struggling, while people who are disobedient seem to be doing just fine. And he begins to doubt if his faith in God was worth anything at all, or if his obedience and trust to God might have been a mistake. Because in comparison to other people, it feels like following God really isn't paying off, and that God doesn't seem to care about him. And a few things arise from just these few verses that are so significant, I do not want us to miss a single one of them. First of all is this, if at any point you have felt anything like Asaph, if at any point you have begun to question and you've begun to doubt the value of being near God or his goodness and care for you, do not be afraid. Be honest. God is saying, be honest. And to any one of us who would think like, how dare Asaph question Almighty God? I would never say something like that to him. Even if I was feeling it, I wouldn't say it. God is saying, hey, I want you to. You are free to air out any burden and any doubt and any frustration that you have on your mind because we can know that there is a God in heaven who is listening and cares to hear it. You don't have to turn there, but Psalm 142 verse 2 reads like this. It says, I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. God welcomes complaint. So do not be afraid of it. Be honest with it. Because God already knows us. He knows our brokenness. And he knows the brokenness of the world in which we live. And like any caring father would, he wants to hear about it from you. He wants you to trust him enough that he's not going to be scared of your doubts. And I think a lot of times we hold back from admitting these things because we don't want it to be true. I'm scared that if I am doubting God's goodness or his strength or his presence in my situation, then maybe he isn't really the God I thought he was. Maybe he isn't God at all. The thing is, our doubts do not transform God's nature. He is not scared of our worries. He is not overwhelmed by our burdens. And so he will not neglect or reject our complaints when we raise them up to him. Because there are spots in our life that will not go away and burdens that will not be lifted until we are laying them at the feet of the one who is good enough and strong enough to bear us up and hear us out. Admitting it to God isn't just to make him aware, it's to make you aware. It's for me to get honest with myself so I can actually be honest with God. And say, God, you know what? I just don't see it right now. Like Asaph says, that when I tried to understand this, it troubled me greatly. I'm trying to figure this out and find my own way, but I can't find it. And if this is true about you, then I'm not so sure that I've been 
putting my faith in the right thing. And usually our complaints start out like Asaph's. They start out externally focused. That I can complain about work. I can complain about drama at home. I can complain about finances or, you know, I can't believe this person cut me off. How could they? Or these people who are not doing all the righteous things that I'm doing seem to be doing just fine. It starts externally focused, but as we get more and more honest with ourselves and as we bring them to God and allow Him to work within our heart, it reveals more, less about the world around us and more about the belief within us. That I'm looking at this world where other people seem to be prospering and I am struggling to make it by from day to day. And the question stops being, how are they prospering? And begins to be, God, are you good to me? Are you going to bless me too? Do you even care? See, our complaint in raising it honestly and transparently to God is our vulnerable way of asking our Father in heaven if he will care for us and if he will meet our needs. And God's answer to that question is yes. Because God knows, because God cares, and he wants us to be open and unafraid of walking to him in an imperfect way. Even if we have issues with the world around us, or we are believing something that is untrue about him. Because when we voice it to him, he is able to answer When we say, God, I'm at the end of myself, I need you to come in and fill out this picture because I can't make it on my own. I think another important takeaway from this is when Asaph says, had I spoken out like this, I would have betrayed your children. What Asaph is saying there is like, look, if I went public and I just started ranting in the streets or took it to the internet that I had all these issues... It would, have, it would have been more harm than good done. And it's the important takeaway there is that we ought to be bringing our complaints personally to God, not publicly just to vent it out. Because where we run to in times of need or in times of desperation reveals where our hope is going to be found. And while we are called by God to have a community of people who will bear our burdens with us, there honestly is no substitute for laying it at the feet of Jesus and of giving it directly to our loving Father. Facebook is not going to be our Savior. Facebook statuses and and tweets just venting about the the condition of the world isn't going to get to the heart of the matter. And getting it off your chest is never going to get it out of your heart until you give it to the knower of hearts and the redeemer of hearts and the renewer of minds. See, complaining out to nothing is to convey that I really don't, I'm not sure I believe anything can happen. But speaking it directly to God is saying, God, I trust that you hear me. I trust that you want to change this. And I trust that you are able to change this. Like a child goes to their parent. They're not complaining just to gripe around, but it's because this is the person that I can go to with my problems. This is the person that I can depend on to help complete the picture and make me whole. That is who God is to each and every one of us. And so by complaining to him, we are trusting that he hears us and that he desires healing and we desire that healing and transformation as well. To remove what is false within us, like Asaph is believing, my faith was in vain, my obedience is in vain, 
And we can say that's not true, but when we're at those points in our lives, that's kind of all that we see. We cannot dig ourselves out of that kind of belief. We need somebody who is greater than us to give us that truth. And just as a brief aside, if you've ever felt like Asaph has felt, if you've ever felt like you're just wondering why you are struggling to follow God while other people are doing fine, going the opposite path, I think there's something in here for for that as well. And we want to speak to that and remember this, is that we are able to call on God and follow after God because we have a relationship with Him. And that relationship is not meant to be a business relationship. It is not meant to be transactions. We do not follow God in order to put Him in our debt because He is our Father, not our employer. And an employer will only give you your wages for the work that you do. But a father, a loving parent, will provide for the child no matter what's going on and meet their needs all the time. And so if we are obeying God, if Asaph is just obeying God, waiting for the pension to kick in, I think we can all admit that he's missing the mark and missing the point. And when we start to look at that and quantify the goodness of God with how many material blessings we have, then we're missing the mark on what this relationship is truly meant to be. And Asaph admitted it. He said, I tried to understand it, but I only wound up more upset and more problemed and more troubled. And it's at this next part of the psalm where he takes it to God. He takes his complaint to God, and God begins to change the tone and change his perspective and show him the whole picture. And verse 16 begins like this. Says, when I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny, referring to the wicked and the people he envied. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. See here, Asaph admits that he doesn't get it, that it bothers him, that he can't solve this on his own. But he finally goes to God with his confoundedness. He finally raises his honest, complaining self to the Lord, trusting that the Lord has something to say to him. And this is vital because our complaints, according to this passage, ought to be the spark and the arising of conversation with God. It's not just something where I'm just going to go ahead and just vent and rant and complain and whine and then just walk away and be like, that was good. Glad I got that off my chest. It might be a little cathartic to do that, but it's nothing like true healing. Healing is in the hands of God. And so if we are willing to speak to him, we ought also to be willing to hear from him and listen to him, the one who knows everything and sees everything and trust that he has something to say to each and every one of us. See, God reminds Asaph that the things of this world don't last. These material blessings that we can covet do not last. And it might look appealing. It might seem attractive to kind of want to live that sort of lifestyle. But spending your life chasing it, chasing your own glory and self-satisfaction is a slippery, slippery slope. Because it is a fantasy to think that the things of this world will ever satisfy like God does. It could all be gone tomorrow. And that's not something that we can place our faith in. 
that's not a solid ground for life. And even if you are able to keep all this and live this life of excess and frivolity and spending on self until your very last day, what's it going to be worth the day after that? You see, God sees the bigger picture and he works in such a more vast scope than we could ever comprehend. And he is not bound by material blessings as a way of proving his goodness. But he's working in Asaph's heart as he is lifting up his complaint to reveal the deeper, the deeper issues with him. That he has placed his hope in some kind of material blessing or some kind of circumstantial goodness here on earth as an equation for whether or not God cares about him. Or whether or not trusting in God is worth it. And God is saying, hey, I don't work that way. I don't work with unreliable things. That's not me. And he doesn't want us to lose sight of him and his goodness for want of something that cannot satisfy and cannot last. And so conveying our complaints to God is trusting that he hears us, trusting that he has something to say, that he welcomes us in our honest self, and that he has some restructuring to do in our hearts. He wants to remove these idols or these things that might distract us from him. So Asaph is taking his complaint to the sanctuary of God. He takes it to God's presence, voices his honest self, and gets this new perspective and truth from God. And as he's reflecting on this, we get to see a tonal shift in all of the things that he says and the way that he views his life. Let's read together verse 21. It says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Like he said, when I was hurting, I could only see the hurt. I could only see the worst possible story, not the whole story. And then verse 23, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Again, what a shift. What a change of perspective from bringing it to God. So the word here is saying that our portion is not found in something that can be spent or stolen. It's not something that can be lost, but it is in the relationship with the one who has always gone with us, even at our lowest, even when we have nothing to show him but our ugliest selves. And we might miss out on it because we are hurt, because we are confounded, because the pressures of this life are hard. But even then, God has us by the hand. And for me, when I realize what I have in God, when I realize that he is holding me by my right hand every step of the way, even when I'm not even paying attention to him, I begin to realize that there was solid ground beneath me every single step of the way. It's like a toddler in a foot and a half of water in the shallow end who's splashing and flailing, crying out because he doesn't know what's going on, if he's going to be okay. And his father's there saying, you're okay, stand up. And there was solid ground right there. He was knee deep. And even if he wasn't knee deep, his father had him by the hand. He was not in true danger because he was with the one who cared for him and who was able to keep him from falling and going under. And that's how it is for each and every one of us because we've been given the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. 
and this is a wonderful, relatable thing, is that God knows exactly the kind of disparity and the kind of unfairness and hurt that this world has to offer. Jesus stood trial, and he was sent to be crucified, though he was completely innocent, while a guilty man, a murderer, got to walk away free. Jesus took his place. And so Jesus, in his innocence, had to suffer and experience loss while the guilty and the wicked got to go away free. And Jesus, before he he went through with this, before he was crucified, cried out to God in the garden. He told his disciples, my spirit is troubled to the point of death. And he is sweating blood in the garden, lifting up honest complaint, honest desire for some sort of relief. God, if you can, lift this cup up from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He is lifting up his earnest, desperate desire, but nevertheless yielding to God's goodness and his truth and what he has designed to happen. And as we all know, through Jesus, God was able to bring about the greatest good in which we were able to be welcomed and ushered in to a relationship with a loving Father who works all things out for good. And God had been giving Jesus everything he needed throughout his entire life and leading him through every single step of the way. And this wonderful reality is that God was no different to Jesus than he is to any one of us. He has never changed or decreased in his care for you, in his grace, in his power, and in his passion and the way that he will convey that to you. Through Jesus, God is saying, come to me with your imperfect self, with your hurting, complaining self. You're my child. I don't expect any less. Come and show me your scars. And Jesus will show you his that he bore on the cross. And scripture says he will bear for all eternity because it's by these scars you are healed. It's by these scars you get to know there was never a moment that you were walking alone. There was never an experience that God was not right there holding you by the hand, giving you wisdom, wanting to speak truth to refresh your heart and transform your perspective on the life you live. Because that life is a gift and is given to you by a loving father who doesn't give his kids cheap gifts. God is not negligent or overwhelmed or worried about what you might have to say. There is no corner that he has not seen and he has not worked to redeem. And though we might struggle and slip, God will remain our strength and our portion greater than any dollar sign ever could, greater than any social status, greater than any well-being of yourself or your job security or the health of your family could ever bring you. God's goodness and presence is better. He alone is able to take this dissatisfaction that we feel and the complaints that we may desperately and vulnerably raise to him and turn a song of complaint into a song of praise and gratitude that through it all, my God was always with us, never giving me sloppy seconds. And on heaven and on earth, nothing could compare to him. Nothing proves more desirable when I see God for who he truly is. So God is saying, hey, if you're not seeing me, for this good and all-satisfying God. Don't shy away. Don't be afraid to tell me 
your opinion and your doubt doesn't change my goodness. But let me know and be aware of where you might have an incomplete, where you may only see in part, so I can show you my glory. I can show you my presence like we sang about. I can make you more aware of my presence and you will experience my goodness with a new way that you may never have known before. And I will show you I have been with you all along. Nothing was unnoticed by our God. So he is saying, don't let one thing go unspoken between you and him. Because whether we feel like we are going at him with clenched fists or open arms, it is drawing us nearer into the arms of our Savior and our Father. Asaph ends the psalm with what becomes his takeaway from the whole experience. And it's my prayer that it's our takeaway as well. Verse 27 says, Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So Asaph began the psalm declaring God's goodness in this objective way. Surely God is good to his people and to those who are pure in heart. And now he is declaring for himself in his own heart, purified by God, that he has full faith that God is the one kind of goodness that he wants to chase after. Some translations of this actually say that the nearness of God is my good. God himself and my presence to him is going to be the lens through which I perceive the world. It is the definition of goodness to be, to be close to God. And our boast isn't going to be in what we can achieve or what we can acquire, but is in the goodness of the one who has rescued us the one who lifts us out of dark and desperate places, holds us by the hand, showing us that he is faithful, even in the midst of question, even in the midst of doubt, even in the midst of complaint. It is through giving our brokenness to God that he's able to take broken pieces and make them whole. He is able to prove himself to us and renew our minds and transform the way that we know and walk with our God. If we are willing to come before Him, honestly and imperfectly, transparently lift up the complaints and grief in our hearts, and willingly hear Him out, He is willing and able to show us how perfectly He cares for His own. Let's pray together.